and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 21st through Sunday, the 24th, feature guest conductor Juanjo Mena and soprano Sally Matthews, along with the women of the Chicago Symphony Chorus. The program includes Sukkot through Orion's Nebula by James Lee III, two scenes from Samuel Barber's opera, Antony and Cleopatra, and after intermission, The Planets by Gustav Holst. Here are notes on James Lee III's Sukkot through Orion's Nebula, the performance time around 11 minutes. James Lee III studied at the University of Michigan, where his teachers included Michael Doherty, William Balcom, and Bright Cheng. The Tanglewood Music Center named Lee a Seiji Ozawa Composition Fellow in 2002, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters granted him the Charles Ives Scholarship in 2003 and the Vladimir and Rhoda Lacond Award in 2010. After completing his doctoral studies in 2005, Lee joined the faculty of Morgan State University in Baltimore. Some of his most recent orchestral works include A Different Soldier's Tale in 2008 for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Slatkin, Chupsha, Harriet's Dance to Canaan in 2011, and Thurgood's Rhapsody in 2016, both for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsip, and Ichabod, The Protest is Over for the Pasadena Symphony Orchestra, conducted by David Lockington. His new work, American, written for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, receives its premiere on April 2, 2020, conducted by Eric Jacobson. Sukkot Through Orion's Nebula received its world premiere by the New World Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas in Miami Beach in 2011. And here is James Lee III on Sukkot Through Orion's Nebula. He describes the work this way. It's a festive work for orchestra. Sukkot is a Hebrew word for the Feast of Tabernacles. In the biblical days, this holiday was celebrated on the 15th day of the month of Tishrei, late September to early October. It was the most joyous of the fall festivals that God mandated the Hebrews to observe. It was also a Thanksgiving celebration for the blessings of the fall harvest. Orion's nebula refers to the Orion constellation in space. The structure of this nebula forms a roughly spherical cloud that peaks in density near the core. The cloud displays a range of velocities and turbulence, particularly around the core region. This work is constructed in seven sections. One, Reminiscences of the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, open the work with percussive, forceful sounds of the snare and bass drums. This is further enhanced by the horns, which imitate the calls of the shofar, a ram's horn, sounded on those holy days. 2. The full orchestra continues to a cadence foreshadowing the grand advent of God. 3. The woodwinds follow with joyful flourishes and dance-like celebrations which imitate the people's reception of the Messiah. As this music continues, the motifs pass on to the percussion section, piano, harp, and eventually the strings. 4. Previous melodies and motifs are developed and transformed among the orchestra. This section celebrates the second coming of God. 5. 
Orion is the one constellation mentioned specifically in the Old Testament. The muted brass, singing violins, percussion instruments, and woodwinds are intended to evoke celestial images of the Messiah coming down out of heaven through the Orion constellation, then the redeemed saints traveling through the constellation, and finally the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Violins soar in the higher registers, which tend to have a quality of weightlessness. Trills among the strings cease as they continue to climb to heights of bliss in paradise. 6. The bass and snare drums provide a reprise of the shofar theme. This continues with orchestral exclamations of joy. And 7. There are passages of call and response among the ensemble in the final celebration, which continues until the work ends with an explosion of sound. Notes by James Lee III on his own, Sukkot through Orion's Nebula. And now on to Gustav Holst's The Planets, a suite for a large orchestra lasting about 51 minutes. After World War I, Frederick Stock, the music director of the Chicago Symphony, resumed his old habit of taking his summer vacations in Europe where he could seek out important new music, attend performances of pieces he didn't know, gather up scores that weren't available in the U.S. One of the novelties I brought from London, he wrote to Francis Glesner in September 1920, is called The Planets, composed by Gustav von Holst, who, by the way, is a cousin of our natural musical friend Hermann von Holst in Chicago. John and Francis Glesner, whose pioneering H. H. Richardson House on Prairie Avenue is now considered one of the landmarks of residential architecture, had enjoyed unusually close ties to Chicago's orchestra since it was founded in 1891. They were given Box M, the center box, when Orchestra Hall was built in 1904. And after Thomas's death the following year, they established a bond with Stock, his successor that transcended a conventional conductor-patron relationship. Francis was one of the few Chicagoans Stock felt he could talk with candidly about music. The host that the Glesners and Stock knew was one of Chicago's leading prairie school architects. In 1905, he had designed architectural buildings for the Glesners' summer place in New Hampshire, Two years later, he, along with Stock, John Glesner, and the Chicago composer John Alden Carpenter, was one of the founding members of the Cliff Dwellers Club that soon settled atop Orchestra Hall. And in 1909, he agreed to oversee Frank Lloyd Wright's architectural practice when Wright and his mistress, Mama Cheney, skipped town for Europe. When he wrote to Francis Glesner, Stock had not yet heard the planets. In fact, the premiere was still two months away. It had been privately performed in September of 1918 in London, but he brought the score back to Chicago with him, intent on introducing the work to America, which he did on New Year's Eve, six weeks after the London premiere. It came as a surprise to us, wrote the reviewer of the Chicago American, for it had been unheralded, and Holst is virtually unknown to the average American music lover. The Planets should be a most dependable and successful addition to the orchestra repertoire, Ruth Miller wrote in the Tribune, but she was skeptical of its genuine worth. It contains all the platitudes of greatness. Stock considered it the most effective of the season's novelties, however, and he revisited three of the movements, Mars, Venus, and the Mighty Jupiter, in the season's last concert. 
In the 1920s, the swift, overwhelming success of the planets both surprised and irritated Holst, much as Bolero would come to embarrass Ravel, who insisted that it wasn't his best work. But the public was captivated by the combination of music and astrology, the music of the spheres made manifest. It was Clifford Bax, the brother of composer Arnold Bax, who introduced Holst to astrology shortly after they met in 1913. Like countless people since, from true scientists to supermarket tabloid fans, Holst was fascinated by the movements of the heavenly bodies and their influence on everyday people. Before beginning work on the planets in 1914, Holst wrote to a friend, I only study things that suggest music to me. Recently, the character of each planet suggested lots to me and I have been studying astrology fairly closely. It's a pity we make such a fuss about these things. On one side, there is nothing but abuse and ridicule, with the natural result that when one is brought face to face with overwhelming proofs, there is a danger of going to the other extreme. Whereas, of course, everything in this world is just one big miracle, or rather, the universe itself is one. During his two years of work on the planets, Holst became, in his own words, a skilled interpreter of horoscopes and privately admitted that casting horoscopes for friends was a pet vice. The planets took two years to complete because of Holst's teaching commitments at St. Paul's Girls' School. He could only compose on weekends and during the August vacation when he locked himself in the stifling soundproof room of the school's new music wing and wrote without interruption. Holst had long shown an interest in exotic subjects. He became interested in Hindu literature and philosophy as a student, taught himself Sanskrit, and set his own translations of Sanskrit text to music. It was his settings of verses from the Rig Veda that introduced Holst's music to Clifford Bax in 1913 and, in turn, inspired Bax to bring up the subject of astrology. At the time of the first complete performance of The Planets in 1920, Holst was nervous that the public would read too much into his new work. These pieces were suggested by the astrological significance of the planets. There is no program music in them, neither have they any connection with the deities of classical mythology bearing the same names. If any guide to the music is required, the subtitle to each piece will be found sufficient, especially if it can be used in a broad sense. When the score was published the following year, Holst was careful to give it the plain subtitle Suite for Large Orchestra, again suggesting that the planets should be considered as music first and last. Holst's daughter, Imogen, a musician herself, remembered that at the first private performance in 1919, the audience felt certain that the first movement, Mars, the bringer of war, with its horrible pounding rhythm, ungainly march in an unmarchable 5-4 time, and noisy brass fanfares, was a description of the war that was still going on. But in fact, Holst had finished Mars early in the summer of 1914, before the outbreak of war that August. After two mechanized wars, Imogen later wrote, it would be easy to take it for granted that Mars had been commissioned as background music for a documentary film of a tank battle, but Holst had never heard a machine gun when he wrote it, and the tank had not yet been invented. Even in 1919, peace could not have sounded more seductive 
than it does in the second movement, Venus, with its celestial wind chords, calm harp strumming, and floating violin melodies. Mercury begins as a scherzo of Mendelssohnian likeness, though it includes instruments like the bass oboe Mendelssohn never heard, and eventually reaches a climax that is very modern in its orchestral ingenuity. Holst's choice of instrumental colors is always keen, a reminder that when his own musical schooling disappointed him, he read Berlioz's exhaustive classic treatise on instrumentation from cover to cover. With its dancing tempo and cheerful tune, Jupiter is a friendly and inviting planet. At the first rehearsal of this movement, the cleaning women in the corridors of Queen's Hall reportedly put down their mops and began to dance. A few years later, Holst brought Jupiter down to Earth by turning its big central melody into the patriotic anthem, I Vow to Thee, My Country. Saturn is remote and mysterious, suggesting the slow but relentless march of time and making humankind seem very small and insignificant. Holst said it was his favorite movement. Uranus, the magician, throws out a handful of notes, then continues to toss them around the orchestra, all the while inventing new themes, combining materials, switching meters, and sidestepping any firm sense of central key. Neptune, the planet farthest away from the Earth, offers an astonishing glimpse of eternity. Holst's music, characterized not by melody or harmony, but by unforgettable chilling sounds and colors, owes much to Debussy, although Holst claimed he wasn't a fan. He admired The Afternoon of a Fawn, liked The Nocturnes, was never very happy about anything else, and hated Pelleas de Melaison. Holst took the idea of a wordless female chorus from Debussy's Sirens, Sirene, but puts it off stage. Beginning pianissimo, the original manuscript suggested four Ps, it concludes this astrological tour with a single measure of music repeated each time more quietly until the sound is virtually lost in silence. A footnote. Despite Stock's enthusiasm and its huge popularity elsewhere, the planet did not immediately become a repertoire favorite in Chicago. It was played just three more times under Stock's baton, and then not at all for 37 years. Although Holst conducted the Chicago Symphony himself at the University of Michigan's annual May Festival in 1923 and 1932 in several of his lesser scores, he never led the orchestra in his most celebrated work. Program notes by Philip Husher on Gustav Holst's The Planets. I'm Richard Caparella. Thanks for listening.